research ops is anything that's going to support your research team um, logistically or otherwise. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> Welcome back to Awkward Silences. Thanks for joining us again this week. We have Kate Towsey with us, and she is, I want to say, the living expert on research operations. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about research ops. Jage is here with us too. Hey, how's it going? Kate, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. 2019, the year of research ops, true or false, Kate? <laughs> so um, I would argue that 2018 will kind of historically, <laughs> which seems like a crazy thing to say, be seen as the year of research operations. Um, it was really the year where we did, uh, I formed the research ops community and uh, we did the what is research ops or hashtag what is research ops initiative that sought to understand what is this thing called research ops and what do researchers need from this thing that could be called research operations. So I reckon if someone had to write a Wikipedia page about it, um, which someone probably might, might do at some point, they would point to 2018 of the, as the emergence of research operations. This is like the, uh, the band. Like I like the early stuff. Uh, maybe we're the more mainstream <laughs> uh, uh, consumers and you're the, uh, you're the insider. Yeah, for sure. We're like the product adoption cycle where, you know, it really hit its moment last year. But I think that the trend's going to continue, but we'll, we'll see. Well, I hope so. I, hope, I think there's uh, still a lot of conversation to be had. Uh, there's a ton of conversation to be had. Um, there's a ton of things that are on my mind now that I'm in an organization and building out an ops team and actually doing the stuff. Um, so if it's got anything to do with me, the conversation's only just getting going. <laughs> Great. Well, let's, let's have some of that conversation and talk about some of what's on your mind right now being, being in the, the thick of research operations every day. So tell us a little bit, let's start from the beginning. What does research ops mean? What is it? So, um, well, it's this, uh, I guess, two answers. The one is, is the framework, which I do actually happen to agree with. Um, and this is the a, a framework, a, a graphic about what are all the different elements that could sit within research operations. And this came out of the hashtag what is research ops initiative last year that I, I mentioned, where we involved, it ended up being like a thousand something people around the world, people who do research and mostly researchers um, who were sharing what are their main challenges in doing research, what do they think research operations is, what are their triumphs, and um, also what they wanted from a community of people talking about ops um, for researchers. And uh, we took a whole lot of that data. It was a ton of data. We had done a survey. We had run 17 workshops around the world. Was it no, 17 countries and 30-something workshops? I need to refresh myself on all the numbers again, but a lot. And um, did a, a, a bunch of analysis. Could probably have done a whole lot more, but... Um, you know, get analysis paralysis. So uh, came up with this framework of these are all the areas of research operations. So to answer your question, research ops is anything that's going to support your research team um, logistically or otherwise. Uh, it, the kinds of things that we work on are research participant recruitment, 
looking at governance structures, um, working with legal team, uh, either internal or external to develop appropriate consent forms, um, how you store those consent forms, um, how you store all the data that's produced in doing research, and that's both for finding it and for compliance. Um, the kind of knowledge that comes out of all this research you do, how do you share and store that? Do you even share and store it? Um, our questions. We um, look at stuff like tooling and thank you gifts and all these bits of logistical stuff that sit around research and aren't the research itself. Yeah, I, have, I actually have the, uh, the graphic up that you guys produced uh, out of all that work. And just looking at it right now, there's the main, you know, node of research ops in the middle. And just did a quick count. There are then 12 kind of like other primary nodes off of it with a bunch of other little, you know, blips off of that. So it's, it's a ton. Um, have you had experience like when a company or an organization is thinking about like, hey, this is something we need to formalize. Like, how do they even go about like approaching it or starting it? It seems like there's so many different layers to it. Like, is there a common entry point that teams have? Mm, it's a really good question. And, and again, because things are so nascent, I can speak from, we've kind of got a few case studies to, to look at it, but there are case studies. And, and one of them is, is mine. I, I'm leading and managing uh, a research operations team at Atlassian. Um, I've been at Atlassian for um, eight months, moved to Sydney for the job. And um, I left a 12-year consulting career to work for an organization so that I could speak with experience. Um, it's always going to be N equals one experience, but still experience and share and engage with people around the world who are doing similar things. So um, I also run a workshop on how to get started with research operations. I'll be doing one, shameless punt, but I'll be doing one in, in Toronto in, in June at Strive. Um, so you, you, once you get into the organization, it's really understanding how the research team has been run, what the strategy is over the next year or even coming years, and working very closely with the head of research to understand what, what their vision is for the team. Because putting in research operations is not always cheap. It's usually fairly, fairly permanent. I mean, nothing's permanent, but it's usually fairly kind of, it's infrastructure. It's pretty permanent things. It's teams, it's people, it's hiring people. Um, it's getting tooling in place that could be on a two-year contract. So... Um, you want to be making really good decisions that are valid over the next year or two. And that's where your engagement and your and, and working with the head of research who has hopefully got a really robust strategy and vision for where they're going and how to implement it and buy-in from executive or whoever to make that happen is absolutely pivotal to the work of operations. Um, so in Atlassian, um, and I think this is pretty common across big organizations or many, any research space, the biggest problem is research participant recruitment and also the biggest opportunity. Um, so we've started really working very hard and building out a team around participant recruitment on looking at various vendors um, that we're using um, to do participant recruitment on our Atlassian research group or our, our research panel and the tooling and uh, compliance around how we manage that. And thank you gifts. And there's like, I mean, just the participant piece is a job in itself. And I'm always saying that when you look at those 12 bubbles on the framework, each one of those is a business that needs to be staffed and the budget needs to be managed and it needs to become a profit center for the business. So when, when people think about, well, I'm just going to do some ops on the side, <laughs> it just, it's not possible. That's like saying, oh, I think I'll just open 12 businesses on the side to get this right. And it just, it's not going to work. 
When you talk about the process of kind of starting to build out an ops function and talking with the head of research to figure out the strategy, I, I start thinking about you're really doing internal research, right? Do you ever feel like I'm doing my own kind of ethnography to figure out how to build this team or, you know, what sorts of methods do you kind of employ to, to figure out what's going to make this organization successful from an org and yeah, from an ops perspective? A hundred percent. And at one point I became a little bit known as the researcher of researchers. I spent many years um, when I was consulting for government in the UK for government digital service on researching some of the best researchers around. And at the time, I remember massive imposter syndrome because I actually wasn't a researcher. I had come into GDS um, to look at the content that researchers produce and see if I could get towards building them a research library to house their content. And uh, ended up having to learn from these amazing, this, this team of kind of 40 amazing researchers as to how to do research. And the irony was that when I left, um, when I, uh, went into other roles after I'd done that work at GDS, which ended up being you know, three years with a few other clients next to it. Um, people didn't want to hire me as a content strategist. I never went back to content strategy and they're all offering me jobs as a researcher. Um, eventually I, I started taking on those jobs cause I had to eat <laughs> and I needed to be very honest about my kind of my fairly basic robust, but basic level of research mm-hmm. skills. And, and yes, I still use that to this day. I think it's much more organic now. Um, I don't spend a lot of time um, interviewing. Um, I'm embedded in the research and insights team. I spend a lot of time engaging with them on a daily basis via Slack or um, in conversation or over lunch or whatever to really start to understand where, and in team meetings, to understand where are our gaps, what's going on. But then also our, prob- our again, you know, you can talk about problems, but also opportunities are so fundamental because I'm walking into a space where there was nothing really before mm-hmm. and we just need recruitment and we need somewhere to store our, store our audio visual. And I've got enough background knowledge at this point to get going with something so that I can learn more about what we need um, to really look after our unique situation. So sort of no matter what, we know we're going to need a certain number of things in any situation. What are some of those things that any kind of organization might need? Yeah, um, and exactly right what you said. Um, Participant recruitment, um, it doesn't matter what kind of research you're doing, the kind of participants you have has a massive impact on how well your research goes. Um, It's the beginning of the pipeline of good research. Um, So now in terms of operations, I, you know, the framework is like the sort of spread of bubbles and I'm starting to look at at the research pipeline as being, well, the, the I step, as operations, we step in well before recruitment even. We would be offering our education, research education team support in setting up their education workshops and boot camps and office hours and various initiatives they've got, which are there so that people across the organization who are doing research, whether researchers or PMs or designers, are doing really good research. Um, so as an operations team, we step in well before recruitment even so that the requests we get for recruitment are good quality requests. And um, we are then providing good quality participants to them because they've been professionally sourced by our in-house team. And um, then after that, we're looking at, okay, so you are in a research session and you need a consent form. You might need various types of consent forms for the context. Um, and perhaps even you're doing ethnographic research and we don't look after this now and we wouldn't probably for another couple of years if we need to. 
looking at travel bookings and helping if you've got a lot of researchers going out in the field, how are they getting there and who's helping them coordinate all the travel around that? Um, so consent forms and, and uh, the research happens, but it's being recorded on audiovisual content. So the next piece in the pipeline is where is that AV content stored compliantly and so it's findable and trackable and auditable. Um, and the tooling that happens all along the way of now needing to do analysis and transcriptions and, 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 and then right out to the other side where you've done good quality or along all the way and, and now you've got good insights and now it finally goes into a research library of sorts and what does that look like and how much value does it deliver. And then the next piece, which is something I am actually working with now with uh, two people on the team is engagement. So you've done hopefully all this good quality research, you've been trained really well, and out the other end comes some really, really valuable insights. And how do we get those insights under the noses of the people who need to notice it and be close to it and make sure that it's delivered in a way that is timely and understandable and applicable to, to what they're doing so that the, the research that's been done both from research and insights, but also from designers and PMs across the organization has real value and impact. I wanted to uh, just quickly go back to something you said earlier when you mentioned, um, you know, all of these different disciplines within research ops are almost jobs unto themselves, and they take a lot of investment to do well. Um, and I'm just picturing the situation of maybe a startup or a company that's grown to 100 or 150 people. And they're kind of at that point where they probably have a mentality of they like to work iteratively and they like to try things before they buy. But they're probably doing enough research where they need help and they need some of the research ops stuff. So that seems like a place where it might be hard to go out and get a bunch of full-time, you know, <clears throat> recs to bring people in and, and really specialize in this. Like, is it better to start by, you know, having somebody who's trying to spread themselves thin across a couple of these areas or they just pick one area and really try to own it to prove the value and then kind of spider out into the, into the other areas uh, that research ops gets involved. Does, does that make sense? It does makes absolute sense. Um, and in some ways the answer is it depends. Um, that's the first answer. Um, the second answer is we're still figuring this out. And the third answer, which is my more opinionated version, is that then you're going in and you're needing to basically look at one thing because you're not going to have the time to look at more than one. Um, and if you do, you are spreading yourself too thin and not really able to deliver necessarily a lot of value. And I've seen this in organizations who have hired, and even my predecessor, um, there was one person trying to do some form of operations and and in the end, you really become an administrator because you can't be doing the admin and the strategy and the planning and the implementation. It's just not possible. So in, depending on the circumstances, it, you're going to need to find what is the most pressing thing right now. Usually it's re participant recruitment, everyone's favorite one, which would include thank you gifts as well. Um, we call them thank you gifts because we don't pay our participants and we don't incentivize them in a sense. Um, it's now become a habit for me to use that term. Um, so one of the strategies we've got because we are looking after uh, 20 researchers and then up to 300 people who do research or PWDRs as I respectfully shorten it to. So um, we uh, one one recruiter can handle 15 requests at any one time and Sarit who's magical and running our research recruitment desk she's got around 35 requests in her um on her kanban right now which is you know not a manageable amount of work so you look at that and you think you have to show the need in order to get the people to scale and and how do you manage that growth which is any startup's problem 
So what we've done is looked at external vendors like user interviews, like um, any one of the other vendors and also just like forage research or uh, askable here in Australia, various vendors that we can be saying, well, one person cannot handle all these requests, but what they can do is be handing requests out to external vendors. Um, we can be partnering with other um, parts of our business so that we are triaging as much as actually doing the recruitment. So there are always means and ways and strategies for being able to coordinate an aspect of research operations. Um, you make the most of the resources you do have right now so that you can show value to grow. If you feel like you're never going to be able to show the value to grow because it's such a small team, there's just no way you're going to get another person on your team. Um, you, your best bet is to focus on one thing and, and do it as best as you can. There's one caveat to all of that, and that is that every single one of those bubbles on the research ops framework are related to every single other bubble. <laughs> and so if you touch one bubble, you're probably going to be touching every other bubble. So in research participant recruitment, you are going to be touching compliance because as soon as you build up a list of people, if you do decide to build out a list, um, you are going to be storing people's data. And so now you have to engage with legal. Um, and I mean, I won't labor the point further than that, but in some ways you, you have to touch every little piece of it, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So you, you want to specialize and find the area with the most leverage in the short term, but it's hard not to get <laughs> yourself woven into the other areas as well. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask this a different way. Um, I feel like we've talked, you know, research ops is very broad and, and seems to include a lot. If we flipped it around and said like, what is definitely not part of research ops? Are there anything that comes to mind as, you know, being very clearly outside the discipline? Yes, this is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> so I think uh, what happened last year, uh, 2018, and the conversation that uh, we drove around research ops is that for me, at least towards the end of the year, there was a confusion about what is ops and what is not ops. And uh, in fact, I ran a workshop at Design Ops Summit in New York. And a lot of that workshop, it was a full day workshop, was really helping people understand that the conversations that researchers are having about being more organized are not the conversations that operations people are having with each other. So to illustrate that um, or, or be more clear about it, research operations is not methodology. It is not what kind of research you go out and do. It is not research strategy. So in my situation, um, Lisa Raykalt, who is the head of research and insights at Atlassian, um, she will be deciding what kind of research we're going to be doing and how the team will be shaped and what kind of people are on that team. Um, how they're going to be spread out across the organization or not. Are they centralized or decentralized? Are they focusing on usability testing or a certain proportion? Are they doing rapid research? All these kinds of questions that anyone who's got any kind of noggin for running a research team of any size is going to be thinking about, dreaming about, and writing notes about early, in the early hours of the morning, most likely. Those are the kinds of things that she is, 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 um, is dealing with and coming up with and, and engaging me in understanding and um, working towards supporting. So I'm not saying that this is happening at all, but it's my favorite example because it's uh, the most illustrative. If she were to wake up tomorrow morning and decide, you know, we have to get out in the field. I need all of my researchers to be traveling around the world, spending time in people's offices, living under software engineers' desks, whatever her kind of vision was, the operations that, I, that I'm delivering now would change significantly. 
um, the tooling would change. Suddenly my participant recruitment would be geared not towards remote research, which is a lot of what we do now, but it would be geared towards finding people who are happy to have a researcher come and live under their desk. Um, the consent forms that I'm, I'm offering would be, and the NDAs would be different because it would be people going into another person's space. Um, the kind of technology I offered would be different because it would be labs in a bag <laughs> and a uh, kit that is, allows researchers to record out in the field. I would be now looking at travel bookings. Um, so you can see that um, having a, a, a head of research or a manager or a research leader who has a very clear vision the vision is their job, the methodology is their job, the strategy is their job to decide on how the research is done and the quality of that research is their job. My job is purely creating the infrastructure that allows that vision to come to life. I, I'm interested in this dialogue, right? Because the vision, the strategy, that belongs to research. If the researcher says we are going to do the under the desk thing, which I'm getting a great like visual image of that sounds like really interesting research. <laughs> um, we're going to do that. Are you going to say, hey, you can do that, but it's going to cost you like a lot of money. Like, is there a dialogue there? Is there a pushback or an interplay or, you know, what's that kind of look like in terms of how you interact with the, the strategy side of things? Again, another one of my um, favorite topics at the moment, because and this is where having come to Atlassian and, and, and left consulting where I'd kind of dive in and build a lab or a panel and then leave and touch one of those bubbles and walk out and had not properly appreciated that every, and, and I learned this through consulting that I, I would deliver one bubble, but really it touched every other bubble and I would never address those bubbles. And was I doing this terrible thing by leaving them with an unfinished ecosystem? Um, so what's happening in Atlassian is, is I'm able to be seeing how, how all these pieces sit together and what the results are of that. So centralizing um, all the costs of research, because now I've centralized research participant recruitment to varying degrees. Um, I'd be lying if I said it was entirely centralized, but we're, we're getting there. Um, means that I've also centralized the cost. And it means that I've now got very specific overview of what all the different things are costing, costing us as research. So... I think it's fascinating in that um, it's not that I've created new cost necessarily. Um, I'm, the recruitment we're doing might be more expensive now because we're doing better quality recruitment um, and more compliant recruitment. But essentially, it's taking us probably as much time if, and, and, and I would say hopefully less if I'm doing my job well. And we're able to see, oh, my gosh, we're spending so much money every quarter on thank you gifts and swag boxes and e-gift cards and that kind of stuff. And this much money on all the various recruitment vendors. It's very easy for um, founders, CEO, heads of, et cetera, et cetera, to be saying we must be close to customers. We must uh, spend a lot of time getting to know our customers. And to be fair, the argument over the last seven years from heads of research or people, seniors in research has been, we need to do more research. We must be doing more research. Hey, let's do more research because it's been um, something that is needed to be sold in. And I think it's been sold in now. We've got massive teams across the world. Um, it's not unusual to find a team of 10 in an organization. And you've got teams of hundreds and hundreds of researchers in, in the very big organizations. So when you look at the cost of uh, research and you're able to represent that because it's centralized, I suspect that um, as this happens more and more, it's going to be a greater conversation around, okay, well, what are we getting back for the spend? There's so many hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent on research every year. And where is the real quality coming from out of that? 
I, I have to ask just because I'm curious now. Uh, what is in your mind the distinction between a thank you gift and an incentive? Oh, yeah. So um, a thank you gift is so I realized when I was saying that, that kind of e-gift cards, swag boxes, Atlassian university vouchers or free trials, whatever, various things that we can offer or charity donations, uh, not something we've got done yet, but are working on. Those are all under the banner of thank you gifts. The reason that we use thank you gifts, why I use thank you gifts as, as my terminology is because uh, from a legal perspective, we don't pay people to take part in research. Um, incentive is, is fine to say internally, but my problem is that if I'm saying incentives, when I'm speaking to researchers and people who do research, I say incentives to them and then they say incentives to their participants. And we really want to get more towards the point where we're saying thank you for your time as opposed to paying you or incentivizing you to share, um, share with us. So it's a minor thing, but it's become such habit for me now, thankfully, after some months of training um, that I just use thank you gift. I love it. Words matter. You're seeing that word, more. Words matter. Yeah, words matter. Trend, but, um, well, in the USA, um, if you pay someone um, or give them above $600, there are legal implications to that and tax implications. Um, so, you know, another thing around tooling is is tracking how many times you've sent someone some kind of monetary incentive, um, some kind of monetary gift, <laughs> right. and how that adds up over time. So the value of you talking about centralization and I can see everything, you know, I can see what we're spending. I can help things get used. Uh, the engagement team, right? A cost potentially could be, Hey, this is slowing me down. Uh, is that a push and pull you've seen or how do you kind of mitigate any feelings of bureaucracy or moving too slow or anything like that that might come along with centralization? It's a massive theme um, and it's something we're, we're battling with. Um, again, it goes back to proving that your service, the service that you're offering is, is a valuable one and it's needed. Um, and then at the same, and not having the scale to meet the demand and then needing to meet the demand to prove that you need to have someone to, you know, it's that push and pull that you'll have in any business that you're growing. Um, we have got another person joining um, Sarit next week, in fact. Um, so we'll double our capacity and over time we're looking to go up to four people. Uh, which is minuscule um, if you compare to people like Google who have, I think it's up to 50 people working just on participant recruitment. That's it. That's all they do. Um, and other teams where there's five, six, seven, eight people working just on recruiting participants. Um, but there is a, a, a kind of a concern in an open organization where people are used to doing their own thing that you're going to bottleneck me. And uh, the way that we're working with that at the moment is to be very clear in communicating where we can help, where we can't, and not shutting someone down if they have to do their recruitment on their own. We like to discourage it, but it's always within the caveat of we have um, an ambition, which is to be able to look after every single partic research participant requirement in the organization, but it's unlikely we're ever going to be able to meet that because you would just need a massive team to be able to do that. And is it valuable for us to be doing that anyway? Um, do we rather want to be focusing on high quality uh, recruitment for high quality research um, where we really, really are needed as opposed to just feeding the beast of um, of being with customers and finding stuff out about them. It, this, my language is not clear on this because it's really, we're working through this and trying to figure out how do we distinguish between these two things? Should we distinguish? What do we support? What do we not support? 
And we had this great image yesterday, which was uh, the little shop of horrors. Do you remember that movie? Very much, yes. Yeah. yeah, with a little like plant, Seymour. Was it Seymour? Was Seymour the dentist? I forget now. I think no, it was Seymour was the dentist, right? Yes. <laughs> and kind of this little, little cute little plant that you start feeding with your, we'll just do, we'll do participant recruitment for all of you. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was saying to Sarita, I hope that you're not Seymour and you don't get eaten by, <laughs> eaten by the plant. Um, so we had a couple of gifts about that yesterday, which was really funny. And it, the image sticks in my mind. So um, yeah, it's communication and, and just not blocking people um, who are wanting to do their recruitment, um, their own recruitment. And yet the other side of it is one of the reasons that we're centralizing is because there are, you know, there's only so much, even with a big organization, there's, there's a limited number of people who are going to be interested in taking part in research who have specific demographics and are the type of person who might take part at particular points for particular projects. And if everybody across the organization who is not aware of compliance um, and is storing details all over the place is contacting people for research, that's just not compliant. And at Alassian and I, and, and I hope you don't excuse, if you, you'll excuse my French, we have one of our values is literally don't fuck the customer. That is how you say it. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, we, we want to look after customer data and make sure we're doing a good job of that. So everybody and Alassians understand this and then want to play ball with us because if we centralize, we can set up processes that are compliant, that we know we're looking after customer data well, that we're not contacting people a gazillion times a year to take part in research, mm -hmm. um, that we're being respectful of their privacy um, and their time. And um, that can only happen when you've got centralized systems to make sure that we are connected up with marketing and uh, the number of times they contact someone is, is linked up with the number of times we contact them and the same with support. So uh, I would be like, you know, we're not near there, but we're working towards there and it might take us a year or so to get to a full, full fledged version of that. But um, uh, that's, I think when people understand that's where you're aiming for, you're not aiming to bottleneck them or to steal their power. Um, they really do get on board and want to play with you. Yeah, let's uh, let's do the complaints in the other direction. When you get a bunch of research ops people together at these events and these meetups and conversations you've had, uh, what do they complain about in terms of like their struggles they face or their organizations not understanding pieces of it? Uh, one caveat, I'm going to take uh, not enough resources off the table because I think if you get a group of people from any department together, they'll complain about that. Um, so like are there trends that come up uh, as frustrations or things that is really top of mind for the research ops community when they all get together and chat? It's interesting because um, there aren't a lot of people actually doing research ops in the world. Um, and this is where I can be a little contentious. Um, I have a distinction between researchers being organized, uh, which is a wonderful thing. And we can learn from each other. Um, we will continue to learn from researchers as ops. You're our customers as researchers. And we constantly want to be in touch and learning not just from uh, my own organization, but from the broader um, kind of community of researchers. But the conversations that we have are very different. So whereas a researcher who's being organized will talk about their favorite recruiters and getting in touch with them to get a brief, I'm talking about service desks and about um, scale and about staffing and about how to manage the staff and whether those staff only do recruiting or do other parts of research ops so that they don't go crazy. and vendor relationships and tooling and um, all sorts of different kinds of workflows across the organization and how I work with 
our data um, holders and our marketing team. So that is a very, very different set of tasks and a very different conversation from a researcher saying, I have got a few vendors I really like using or several of them I like using. Um, and I've gotten really good at briefing and understanding screeners. Um, but when I hang out with research ops people um, and going back to, to the kind of core of your question, we have uh, like, I had, I was very happy to have lunch a couple of few months ago, I guess now with Tim Toy, who heads up their Airbnb's 10 person research ops team. And we had a fantastic lunch purely because we could sit and moan about various vendors that weren't working for us and share praise for other vendors who are really working for us. And uh, basically like a big gossip fest, I hate to say, about who was, because it's a small industry at the end of the day, who was working for us, who wasn't working for us, uh, what kind of team structures were working within um, his team and, and the kinds of structures I was at least at that point with my team of one, me and one, looking, hoping to form um, and the kinds of workflows that were working and were not working in recruiting participants. Those are the kind of conversations that we have as ops people. And we'll talk about tooling and costs around running a library, for instance. Um, so it's very exciting conversations we would have and, and conversations that might glaze other people over because uh, I will get excited about, oh my gosh, you've got someone who looks after uh, your uh, quantitative tooling plus your lab tooling plus your booking systems. And I'd get excited about that as a concept, um, which is maybe not interesting to a lot of other people. We're a unique crowd. <laughs> Back to the band example, you're like fans of the world. <laughs> exactly. <band. laughs> yeah, really cuts only. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I wonder if it's a, to hear you talk, it almost feels like, do you feel certain camaraderie with other ops teams, right? That are supporting other kinds of teams, DevOps, sales ops, ops ops. Yeah, it's such a great point because um, Actually, I was talking to Lou Rosenfeld about this the other day, um, and uh, I'm doing some, some collaboration with him now um, with the design ops slash research ops community, and uh, I, I don't mind being put under design ops because I feel like there is a really great conversation to be had between, uh, first, uh, it would be, in my mind, research ops, and then design ops, and then DevOps, and really a singular workflow that goes through all of it, and how as ops we all meet up and we don't duplicate and we dovetail along the way. And that conversation hasn't started up yet, and quite a few people have said, hey, why are we not having this conversation, and I just don't have the bandwidth right now to have another kind of big conversation about something uh, like that. But even, you know, in Atlassian, I think we're hiring in a, a new design ops person, and I'm very curious to start to talk to them. And it's funny because um, I, I go with my team into a restaurant and, and we'll be sitting there and going, hey, like, you, you know, those restaurants where you can see the kitchen and we'll end up in these geeky conversations about, I wonder how they do this. And, and I'll look and say, do you reckon we should work in operations? <laughs> because <laughs> We're just curious about how things work and how they fit together and what the workflows are in general. Um, so I think there's a massive crossover in in looking at other ops within the organization. And I've been very curious just even looking at courses on regular business operations. What do these people talk about and think about? And it's all the same stuff, just that our focus and our unique talent is knowing enough about the research side of it that we don't have to be taught all the time what researchers are thinking and why they're thinking it because we, we have a kind of an, a learned knowledge around that. So 
research ops, I think we've established, is a thing, but it's still a new <laughs> thing. What is like the biggest mistake that a team should look to avoid if they were getting more serious about this going forward? The biggest mistake is to think that you can do it as a side job. Um, if you could, as a researcher, if you could do it on the side, or as a head of research, if you could do it on the side, you would have probably done it already. Um, you know, and head of research has got so much work to do just in strategy and methodology and craft. Um, it's the biggest mistake is to underestimate the size of and, and the effort that needs to go into even delivering one element of research operations. Um, and I, I think that's kind of independent of scale, even if if you've got a, a team of 10 researchers, still there's a fair bit of recruitment to do there. Um, and you might be able to, and this goes to your earlier question um, around kind of where to start. Um, you, you're gonna be doing a relative amount of recruitment for 10 people and uh, you could probably dip into a couple of other things, but achieving anything of significance is gonna be hard work. It's gonna be difficult. You know, building a, a research panel um, and actually getting that going and doing a proper job of it, um, it's going to take at least two or three days of your week full-time, like two or three days full-time, if that makes sense. Uh, a lab is about the same thing. Um, you know, I've built labs in the past, uh, research spaces, and that's at least three days of my time getting it off the ground and then still needing someone to manage it and make sure it's clean and organized and the booking systems are working. That's a, it's a two or three day a week job. So all of these things, they, they need, they need people power behind them and the costs shouldn't be underestimated either. So in some ways, um, I look at and I think I'm working in a big organization who um, is investing in the space through Lisa's leadership. Um, and I wonder, and this is a question in my mind as opposed to statement, is research operations something that is really needed in the larger organizations, the larger, larger teams where it can be expressed fully or can it be done in environments at a much smaller scale? Can it even be done by one person? I'm dubious because in my experience, it doesn't work. But um, I'm very open to kind of exploring what are the various levels of research operations? What does that look like? Yeah. Is there a tipping point? I'm sure it depends uh, on a lot of things, but you have X number of researchers. You mentioned 10. You know, how many researchers do you need to need a research ops person? Mm. I, it sounds like a, a weird specific number, but eight seems to be the number. Mm -hmm. um, I've, when I've spoken over the years, I'm sort of talking about half a decade now um, in speaking to people across the world with teams and when they feel they need some kind of support, it seems to be at six or seven, you're sort of feeling like you're okay kind of mucking along as a team. And then you get to eight and you're like, oh, I'm feeling a little bit of a squeeze here. And by nine or 10, um, you're now feeling you've got a, more team meetings and the demand across the organizations more on the researchers and where do they store their stuff and uh, those sorts of questions become um, more prevalent. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those stick your finger in the air kinds of um, answers, right. but uh, eight ten feels like uh, when those conversations become, become uh, you know, something that comes up more, more and more often. So don't take the job as the 10th researcher without a research ops person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably, unless you want to be carrying uh, a lot of that weight. So I, I have to add to that that, uh, for instance, with our scale and we don't have enough people working on participant recruitment at the moment to handle the sort of service we're offering right now. Um, but what we've done is said, okay, we're using various uh, sort of cloud recruitment tools and we allow the researchers to self-service through that. So we, we support them in certain ways. In, we've supported them in setting up the tool, 
in procuring the tool in making sure there's money in the tool, but actually doing the recruitment is their job. And uh, same with our quantitative recruiting. Um, here's your vendor. I manage the relationship. I fund it, but I don't have the bandwidth to actually do the engagement with the vendor. So, and actually doing the briefing and everything that that's over to you. So there are kind of various levels, I guess, in that sense of, how you can deliver your ops. It might not be the full expression of, I'm gonna do everything for you and you won't need to lift a finger. It might be a little self-service at points. Um, I have one last question. As a, as a person who does research myself, who's not a dedicated researcher, um, on the ops side, what's that experience like when uh, a person who does research comes to you guys? Is it easier because they're maybe less fussy and um, have a, less of a strong opinion than a true researcher? Or is it, it's all over the place and you need to hold their hand a lot more? Do you, uh, is there a point of view on uh, how that tends to go? Yeah, very much. So um, I think one of the things with designers and uh, well, people who are not researchers doing research, it goes back to that old story of research is not easy and it's not just talking to people. Um, it's a skill and it, and it's it's a practice skill that needs to be constantly practiced and, and, and developed over time. So, and that goes right from even knowing what kind of methodology you're going to use is it the right methodology for this particular problem defining your problem and what you want to learn the full that full pipeline is dependent on each part of it has very specific skills so when someone um, who is not a skilled researcher um, and, and is sort of wanting to try and do something but not getting it right all the way comes along and their brief is slightly off and then their demographic is slightly off and the kind of participants they get might not be quite right for their research because you've basically had to go with their brief the whole kind of thing just the, maybe their interview skills weren't quite right just the, the whole thing doesn't end up great at the end so we find that um, all the way through the process there's, there's a bit more hand-holding and trying to figure out what does this person actually want and hang on a second why are they doing this research with this technique maybe this is an interview and not a survey or maybe this isn't a diary study maybe this is something else um, so we've got to do much more of that thinking because we're also questioning their capability. Um, whereas when a known researcher who you, you know knows what they're doing, when they come to you and they ask you for five of X, you, you get them, you get those people for them and uh, things go a lot more smooth. <laughs> cool. Good to know. I'm used to uh, being, uh, being told that maybe I should take a sharper look at some stuff. So that sounds right. <laughs> really, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it's a, um, yeah, we love working with researchers um, and so the dream is to basically be servicing just really, I mean, from an ops perspective, if you want an easy operations, you just say, please just give me 90 researchers to work with and all of them must be amazing researchers and I'll be in heaven. <laughs> um, we're at an hour and we got a couple good awkward silences in and I think we covered most of what we wanted to cover. I always like to ask Kate, is there anything that you want to tell us, any closing words everybody should know about research ops that we didn't talk about this is where i'm always like i can my you know the the duck with the legs under the water and i'm like oh, what, what can i ask yeah. <laughs> um i'm really interested in how the conversation um progresses over the, the coming years um i um suspect that it's I wonder and, and, and suspect that perhaps the conversation will be a little smaller than it was last year in 2018 because uh, uh, researchers are going to carry on being interested in research and craft, and so they should. Um, but it means that there's a lot less people who are truly interested in the operations conversation for operations. And I think that's, that's very honest and, and fine. Um, but 
over time, it's going to be interesting to see the questions around what kind of people do you hire into operations? Because there aren't people, you, you can't advertise and say, I want someone who's got a lot of experience in research ops because there aren't many of us out there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to be very exciting over the, the next year or two, three, four years, whatever, hopefully beyond that, um, to see how we shape up and how the conversation grows from an operations perspective and not from a craft perspective. Well, we'll uh, put this in the archive and make sure to check back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be really great. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>